0: Was a song called Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, although it was from the 1964 movie of the same name. Many different versions of it were made. We'll talk about that later. But this particular one, if you recognized the voice, was from the 1965 album Joy in the Morning by Mr. Richard Chamberlain. Ha
1: ha! Well, yes, in my previous life, I, I was a singer. Yeah, you know, we
0: make fun of you for, for doing your little song music thing on here, but who knew, you know, you were such. You really are an accomplished musician. But you are not that Richard Chamberlain. You are a different Richard Chamberlain. Which one are you?
1: Well, I am the Richard Chamberlain from MonstermovieKid.wordpress.com.
0: And I'm Jeff Owens, never been a singer. From classic Today we are here for our monthly meeting. We're going to talk about two wonderful movies. One of them, I bet people can guess, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte from 1964, five? Uh, technically, 1964. It had its
1: premiere on December 19th. And then its wide release was in January. But yeah, you know, technically, I would say 64. And what's the other movie? It goes by two different names. Fanatic is, I believe, is its British title. Over here in the States, it is Die, Die, My Darling. Doesn't have
0: a theme song that I know of.
1: Not that I'm aware of either. And you think that it, well, no, actually, I think there is a song out there based oh, on it. Oh,
0: yes, yes. Not yes, from the Not movie a though. theme song, no right. no. right. Maybe we'll play that one at the end. Who knows? Should we beg the gavel? call the meeting to order? Yes, we shall. Well, sadly, our old business might be a little short. We did not have the regular influx of new members that we usually have on our Facebook group page. Nevertheless, we are very happy to have two, and I'm just going to read them, Richard. We I don't think we need to go back and forth. Let's welcome Jim Crean and Dur McKenzie. Welcome, one and all. One and one. Two and all. Two and all, yes, welcome. I'd like to add something, though,
1: to these two wonderful members that we got. I would like to say a hearty goodbye and don't come back (laughs) to people like Deanna Giron and McMahon Woodard and Alan, no last name, and a long list of potential scammers that have been coming to our page. Between you and I, we've been catching them fairly quickly I'm really kind of curious that we've got a, you know, Turnbow de Jesus. I'd really wish that was somebody who was legit. That's kind of a cool name. I had a string of three in 24 hours and they're all about shoes. I apologize to any of our listeners who have a a shoe collection and would like to know more about these wonderful shoes that they're offering. You're (laughs) going to have to be pretty quick on the draw to click on that link. It is not sponsored by the Classic Horse Club podcast.
0: So don't let that scare anyone off. We invite you to join us and uh, have some fun on the Facebook group page. Regular shout out to my mom and brother listening from California. I talked to them yesterday and told them the movies that we would be talking about. They're very, very excited to to listen.
1: Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. And I will uh, do a, a shout out to my wife, Carla, who. Did not watch either of these movies, as she is not a fan of Exploitation. She is on board with our topic next month, though, which you will find out at the end of this show, going a bit farther back in a, definitely a different vein. And give a shout out to my daughter, Kayla, who handles our
0: Instagram page. We do have an abundance of feedback, though. Short but appreciated feedback. We actually had an email, Richard. I can't remember if I forwarded you this or not, but it's from a listener named William Hess. He says, with the bitter cold and snow on the ground, it's time to dream about summer, especially drive-in horror, double, triple features or Mm. all-nighters. Hope you do a few of these this spring and summer. Trailers, commercials, and drive-in info really is interesting. So I thanked him and told him, of course, we would be doing it again this year and that we had one in particular we were planning that was gonna be a little extra special fun.
1: Jeff doesn't even know this. I've actually been doing a little bit of research already. I, you find one thing and then I went down the rabbit hole. I'm fairly certain Jeff will be on board with this. So I'm gonna take a leap of faith and say, there's a really good chance that we might be visiting a Kansas City drive-in of the past. Mm. I found some interesting ads out there of movies that are totally in, in sync with us. Our fifth annual this year, I believe. Yes, fifth annual. That sounds... I don't even know how we've got to five years already. Mm.
0: The rest of our feedback came on our YouTube channel. Our listener, Prince Everlove, who uh, left feedback last time, left a couple of comments on the episode, the podcast companion, which I will say is our video on the YouTube channel that accompanies this audio podcast every month. He watched the one where we talked about Black Zoo and Horrors of the Black Museum, and said Michael Guff, Elijah Cook in the same film, Rare Cult Combo. He's absolutely right. That was Black Zoo. And then...
1: I, I gotta stop there for a second. His name is awesome, and I'm wondering if it's a play on the fact that Prince would use the name Alexander Nevermind as a pseudonym... Someone I'd ever love, never mind. I don't know. Mm, I don't know. I'm curious, Prince, if you're out there, let me know. I'm I think that'd be that's kind of a cool name. Very cool.
0: I had posted a review of Headless Ghost on my blog after the podcast because it was the bottom half of the double bill with Horrors of the Black Museum. And he just said, Another retro gem I missed. And finally, we have I post trailers on the side whenever I write a review. I think it was 2018, actually. I wrote a review of How Sweet Charlotte and posted the trailer. Well, someone found that. This is Big KH 2.0. And he said, truly looking forward to watching and critiquing the movie. So I assume he knew we were going to do that this month and saw the trailer there and provided that feedback. So if you are listening, Big KH 2.0, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you, everyone, for the feedback. We appreciate it, however you get it to
1: us, whether it's voicemail, email, carrier pigeon, (laughs) stone tablet in a cave hidden on a mountainside in Tibet. That might be a little hard for us to get, but I'm up for the adventure. Josh Gates and Expedition Unknown. That's where that came from.
0: I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) Speaking of last month's episode, we had Rob Rob Kelly on and he this month has an episode of his Fade Out podcast, which he talked about with us, that is about Peter Cushing and his final film, Biggles Adventures in Time. I have listened to that. It's a great episode. I don't know if anyone's seen Biggles Adventures in Time. It's generally not considered one of his finest. However, Rob and his guests do a very good job of talking about Cushing's career and demonstrating how he brought any material up a notch or two just by being in it. That can be found on the Fire and Water Podcast Network or wherever fine audio podcasts are found. These people that were so kind to leave feedback, they emailed us at classichorse.club at gmail.com. They visited our YouTube channel. The methods they did not use were number one, to send us a voicemail or to actually record one by calling 616 649 2582. That's 616 649 Club. I think those that weren't convinced that you aren't the one and same as the actor Richard Chamberlain now know for sure that you are not.
1: Thank you for pointing that out. That does wonders to my ego this morning. <laughs>
0: Why don't we take a break and come back and dig into our first movie, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Charlotte. Sure. The winners of five prior Academy Awards and
1: 21 Academy nominations now bring you suspense unequaled in the history of the screen. Shock that will leave you speechless.
0: God, what have you done? Hush, sweet Charlotte,
1: Charlotte, don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, I'll love you till I die. Yes, I
0: told you, and I told your father, too not I tell him that his pure, darling little girl was having a dirty little affair with a married man? You're a vile, sorry little tramp. How was I to know it would end in murder?
1: But it didn't end with murder, it just began. What was the warped and twisted thing that turned this house into a nightmare?
0: Where do you think you're
1: going? I'm going upstairs and I'm going to tell her what you've been up to. What's going on?
0: What's there that you don't want me to see? <laughs> Co-starring Agnes Moorhead, Cecil Calloway. Don't you think I know what you're looking for in my house? But what does it matter if you haven't anything to conceal? Oh, but I have, I have things concealed, vile things. Where do you suppose I keep them? Haven't you guessed?
1: Guest star Victor Blono. You know what it's costing me not to kill you. Also starring Mary Astor.
0: Let me tell you, Miriam Deering, that murder starts in the heart. Don't turn on the light. It, it, it's only real when it's dark. I won't turn on the light. Come along.
1: <laughs>
0: He's dead! He's dead! He's dead! Shut your mouth.
1: At a plantation in the Deep South, Charlotte Hollis has been ordered to leave the family home, where she's lived for over 40 years, so that a new highway can be built across the property. When her last surviving relative, her cousin Miriam Deering, arrives to assist with closing the house, family secrets are brought to light, and Charlotte descends into madness.
0: Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte was written... By Henry Farrell and Lucas Heller. Based on a story by Henry Farrell. Directed by Robert Aldrich. It stars Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, Cecil Kellaway, Victor Buono, Mary Astor. All star cast and somebody I'm sure we're going to mention. One of your favorites. I'll save you the honors when we get to that. Uh, Since you have a puzzled look, I'll do the honors right now. Bruce Stern. Oh yes, yes, an early role of Bruce Stern, George Kennedy, the All Star cast. This was a prestige picture.
1: Yeah, there, and there's definitely some some small appearances. Uh, we've got more than one Star Trek connection on this one, so uh, one that might be a bit of a deep dive, but I think for Star Trek fans, they they recognized uh, a rather unique a visage
0: of mm. uh, one of the cast members. What did you think, Richard, of Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte? Had you seen it before? How did you watch it? Both of these movies we're covering
1: today are first time. Really? I have seen a few clips of Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte over the years, but never actually sat down to watch the movie from beginning to end. And when we get to Die, Die, My Darling, I've had that in my collection for several years, including on that Blu-ray set that came out a couple of years ago now. Never actually sat down to watch it. Both of these movies were a little different than what I was expecting. They're different, certainly, than some of the last exploitation films we watched, which were, I think, a little more tongue-in-cheek at times. Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte was a bit grander than I was expecting. I mean, it, it goes 15 minutes into the film before you even get the opening credits it had a really good look to it and the cast. I didn't look at the cast list before watching the movie, which I'm glad that I didn't because you know when you see George Kennedy pop up it's like, "Oh, that's George Kennedy." Cecil Kellaway. Oh, wait, I know him. I don't know his name, but I've seen him in other things. Of course, Bruce Dern, you know, lots of familiar faces and all the way up till really the final scene of the film, you're getting some fun appearances. I really enjoyed this one. I can see how It's considered a classic, although it's always kind of plays second fiddle to whatever happened to Baby Jane. And while I like that movie, I don't know. There's something about this movie that it's different, but it got made essentially because Baby Jane was so successful. I'd say I have to like Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte a little better than Baby Jane.
0: I'm glad you made that comparison. And Robert Aldrich, he directed Baby Jane. Of course, Betty Davis was in it. Joan Collins was, uh, Joe Collins, Joan Crawford was supposed to be in this one. We'll come back to that in a minute, I'm sure.
1: That's a whole yeah. podcast in it, So yeah.
0: yeah. But Baby Jane, I mean, I like them both, but I do think this is a slightly better film. I think there's more of a, maybe a plot or a story. Yes. It does drag a little in the middle to me, but I think I, I do also like it a little more than Baby Jane. But I love Baby Jane as well. So don't get me wrong when I say that. This was not the first sort of, if we're going to call them, exploitation that Betty Davis made after Baby Jane. She had one in between there called Dead Ringer, which is a very good movie as well.
1: I'm trying to to come up with the right words to say without, because I don't want to belittle Baby Jane. But to me, exploitation... Baby Jane kind of fits into that exploitation genre a lot more than Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte does. Olivia de Havilland is not a hag, but she is the, you know, and spoiler alert here, folks, I mean, she's the evil one. Betty Davis, she has moments where she's the hag, so to speak, but actually felt sorry for her. She's clearly dealing with with mental health issues later on in life, the the love that she lost, something that she has lamented over her entire life. With Baby Jane, you don't feel sorry for Betty Davis in that film, really. And Joan Crawford is always very harsh in her roles. I'm not a huge Joan Crawford fan. Some of her films I like better than others. I'm actually glad... That she ended up not being in this film, though. I I think that it would have changed the film. I think there would have been way too many comparisons to Baby Jane. Whereas I think the absence of Joan Crawford helps this film. It still is in the shadow of Baby Jane, but it kind of helps it stand on its own a little bit more. And for me, enhanced my viewing pleasure.
0: I can't imagine her in this role. Olivia de Havilland is so good. She is so sweet and nice. Nice. Typical Southern Belle. Since it was your first time viewing, I want to know how long it took you before you suspected her. The minute she drives up, you think, okay, she's involved. That's just where these movies lead you to believe. But the way she acted, I had no clue that she was really involved. And the way she can turn on a dime and just be brutal and cruel, I thought she was fantastic. I don't see that, I guess, bigger range maybe in Joan Crawford. Had she been in this? No, no. I I think
1: as far as like you know who done it which we get the official confirmation really basically at the end of the film i mean essentially i did guess that i got that from the opening scene but there
0: was other suspicions i never thought that she did it though i didn't think that she did it so I, let's just tell people what we're talking about so the movie opens in oh gosh i don't remember what year it is Her father, you know, they're a prominent family in the South, and uh, Victor Buono, who plays her father, has a big dance party that goes on for days, and his daughter is Charlotte. She is getting ready to elope with Bruce Stern, and nobody's too happy about that except Bruce Stern and Charlotte, especially since Bruce Stern is married to Jewel Mayhew. Long story short, during that party, Bruce Stern is murdered, and... Charlotte walks out of the room with her dress covered in blood. It is understood, although I don't remember how she was sort of acquitted or not found guilty. Maybe she was a minor. She left the country, right? Yes. She went to England for a while, right? Yeah. Right. But she's basically, as an adult, been holed up in this house as a recluse. Yeah. And I... Think she knows that she didn't do it, but she's not just real certain. We're certainly not certain.
1: She's got mental health issues. She has delusions. Thinks he's still alive sometimes. As the movie progresses, is used against her. I thought early on, I knew who did it. Are we going to talk about who did
0: it? Well, yeah, because now I'm questioning if, because I, to be honest, there was a little bit of ambiguity to me like i thought all along that it was her father that did it
1: i had two suspicions the greater of the two i guess i should say i i did think that jewel did it huh honestly. i
0: never thought that i don't
1: I, know. I, I i i don't know why because there was i don't think there was really anything in the opening part of the movie that really steered you that way Big Sam Hollis, he was lurking around and, and coming around corners and stuff. He was looking rather suspicious. And I wouldn't have been surprised if it was revealed that he did it just because of the way that he's played off in those opening 15 minutes. Oh, so What made you suspect her? The wife scorned. It's too obvious that it's going to be Charlotte. I don't think that's going to be it. Right. Miriam was constantly looking, so I'm like, she didn't seem like that she would have had a hand in it, per se. Cause... Was
0: Jewel even at the party? Was she the other girl that was yeah, with yeah. Miriam? Okay.
1: Miriam was always trying to find... So, well, she was looking for Charlotte, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like the timing. I was like, how would she have had time to do that? Big Sam would have. Because we see him lurking, he disappears, lurking, disappears. He certainly had reasons, because <laughs> the way the whole thing played out... Bruce Stern did everything that was expected of him, but still Big Sam being who he is. Even in what little we know of him in that opening part of the movie wouldn't have surprised me. I don't know, there was just the woman scorned. If anybody would have been really, really angry at Bruce Stern's character of John, would have been his wife, unless you'd say Charlotte kind of snapped. She seemed to be more hurt and mentally broken I felt number one suspect was Jewel, number two would have been Big Sam.
0: Did it contribute to your suspicion that Cecil Kellaway's character was an insurance investigator that showed up in town and he was wondering why Jewel never cashed in her insurance policy? See, I was unclear on that, but if you had clearly understood that, I wonder if that's incriminating evidence.
1: That added to it. The first hint we get that Miriam is not, who she appears to be really is when she confronts Jewel on the street, Jewel basically is like, get away from me, go away. Miriam is kind of like, you know, why are you acting this way? Clearly something's happened there. We find out later that Miriam has basically been blackmailing Jewel, and so that's why Jewel wouldn't be nice to her as the movie progresses. Miriam is unhinged herself to a degree,
0: the term is a little broad, hack exploitation, and I think it's used pretty generically when there's two older women in the there are the feature of the story. You're right. It absolutely it's not at least following Baby Jane, it's not a typical what you've come to expect.
1: I think this is a classic case where you have an umbrella and then you have movies that are right smack dab under the umbrella, and you have the ones that are at the very edge that could actually like have one toe dipped in that hack exploitation side. And another toe dipped in suspense thriller.
0: I want to go back to the beginning for just a sec because it is so well done. The cleaver, meat cleaver that is used, I liked how it was shown. Resting on the butcher block one minute, gone the next. The next, yeah. I never really knew who took it. Pretty graphic, showing his hand cut off. Yeah. Uh, They didn't show his head getting chopped off. However... Later in the film, when it comes rolling down the stairs, I realized, oh, they cut off her head as well. Yeah. (laughs) Cut off his head as well. But that was really good. And then even going into the next scene, which is the present day, as far as the movie goes, and the kids daring each other to go in the house because it's haunted or whatever, and... Very Lizzie Borden-esque, that's what it kind of evoked for me. I loved as the one kid who was dared to go in, the other kids are saying, watch out for that Cleaver. Yeah. And then it's very spooky when he goes in, and then all of a sudden, Charlotte stands up out of the chair, and that's the first we've seen her, and definitely a different appearance than the sweet, pretty young thing from the past.
1: Well, I thought it was interesting because you never really saw her face in those flashbacks, Mm -hmm. right? It was right. always kind of in the shadows. And I don't know whoever they, they used had a resemblance to a younger Betty Davis. I didn't see in the credits who played that. I think that was Betty Davis doing the younger voice. I
0: think so. It sounded like uh, her.
1: Tempting it anyway. Kind of a little creepy at times. You're that little boy, you're in a house where you shouldn't be anyway, and everything's dark and creepy and kind of dilapidated. Here's this woman who appears to be this crazy old woman, jumps up out of a chair. Yeah, yeah, you are going to go right on out. That'll be haunting him the rest of his life. I had a question about the end, though. It's kind of sad for her character, right? Because she committed murder. She killed both of them. Was she being arrested for the murder? I didn't quite follow that Uh at the end.
0: I got the hint that maybe she was, but, I mean, she wasn't in handcuffs or anything. Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't even think about that. I just assumed she had finally realized she had to leave the home and she was leaving. It wasn't a police car, was it? Was it a taxi?
1: I'm kind of confused. It's like,
0: how are they going to explain
1: the deaths that, I mean, just tipped over and fell? Which, I mean, it it could. And if she doesn't say anything about it, it's a horrible accident and a house that's dilapidated. I didn't catch that clarity. I was like, is she really free? It seemed like she kind of was. At the end, because they were yeah. taking pictures of her and people seemed to be okay, more she, respectful of her. They were. Yes, blessed. because she wasn't the killer that they, they thought she was. And well, and no, in reality, she did <laughs> right. murder, however just it may be. She questioned whether she did it. You know, now she knows she didn't do it. I would think she's still lamenting the loss of John after all those years. And maybe that healed that wound and she was able to move forward.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I also wanted to talk about Agnes Moorhead. She plays, I guess, Betty Davis' companion. She's sort of the maid, sort of the yeah. nurse. Or Bel- oh. Velma or... Uh, yes, Velma. Yeah. Oh. She was nominated for an Oscar, Best Supporting Actress. This is, to me, a very interesting fact. I hope I'm not spoiling when we get to the cast. But she lost to Lila Kadrova, who was in a movie that always makes me think of you. Zorba the Greek. And nominated that year also was Grayson Hall from Dark Shadows. She was nominated for an Oscar for Nine of the Iguana. Agnes Maury did not win. She won the Golden Globe for the same performance, but not the Oscar. Anyway, I'm not sure it was an Oscar-worthy performance. It was a little showy, a little caricature-y.
1: I think one of the cheesier performances in the entire film. Yeah. And that's and, nothing against Agnes Moran. I love Agnes Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think she had been nominated before. So she may be one of those that was just constantly nominated no matter what she did. I don't know. Talking about herself in third person, you know, Velma thinks this, Velma thinks that. Is that third or first person? Jeff doesn't know which it is. <laughs>
1: you got me questioning it. <laughs> I think you're speaking to yourself in third person. So I think okay. that...
0: Yeah, I got used to it and I think she was better later in the movie, but it really stuck out at first to me.
1: She was good in that role, but I mean, the way the role was written and the way that she actually kind of played it, which I guess is the way they wanted it to be played. I mean, it's
0: worth a few chuckles. Oscar worthy. Olivia de Havilland gave a a better performance acting the way she was so smooth and then so mean. I had to write down a couple of Quotes of hers. One was when she saw Velma doing something. She said, You can't keep hogs away from the trough, can you? <laughs> yeah. Which it doesn't seem like that outrageous a line, but coming from her mouth after what we knew of her, it was very striking. Yeah. She calls somebody a wretched idiot and she bitch slaps Betty Davis hard. Oh, yeah. She two does. times. Yes. <laughs> she actually did really good with that character. It's a bit more to her than meets the eye. This is a good time. I want to return to the song and talk about it. It was also developed, nominated as Best Song from a movie for the Oscars. It was actually introduced in this movie. It was written by Frank Duvall and the lyrics by Mac David. And it appears in the film as a song on the music box. She hears it playing on a harpsichord when she's in bed sleeping. Then she plays it herself and she sings the most of the lyrics that we hear in the film. At the beginning, it's only music, no lyrics. Does that make it a song, Richard? Sorry, side joke. Steve Turrick, hi. At the end, it is like one verse is sung by a, a guy called Al Martino. It was in the movie, but that's enough to get nominated. And at the Oscars, Betty Davis was actually going to sing it, which... I know we talked about this because she sings the song in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but I just don't normally think of her as a singer. Anyway, she did not... Nor should (laughs) you. Nor should you, sir. (laughs) I don't remember why she didn't do it at the Oscars, but it was done by Patti Page. Was such a... I would say someone had common sense, but (laughs) that's... It has such an impactful delivery of the song that they recorded it after excuse me, the Oscars, and it became a big hit. And it was covered several times, mostly in that era, you know, the the years after. I don't know that there's been a recent rendition, but I wanted to just mention some of the people who have done this song before. Hoyt Axton, Bruce Forsyth. This was in England, and it was to compete with Patty Page's version. However, in England, his version and the song did not become a hit. Richard Chamberlain, of course, we've already heard. A gentleman named Chris Connor on an album Chris Connor sings Gentle Bossa Nova. Betty Davis's version was actually released on an album she made in 1976 called Miss Betty Davis. <laughs> there was a 1965 album. A record of movie themes and soundtracks like Peyton Place was on there. In fact, that's what it was called. Theme from Peyton Place. 11 other great themes. Saxophone virtuoso Jerry Meligan had a 1965 album. If you can't beat him, join him. Finally, uh, this, I'm going to be like speaking another language, but Aisha Morell with a two little dots over the A. It was called Tuli Kuska Sen. I believe this was in Finland. Ah. Uh, and then also a Danish version by Berta Wilkie Soy Sod Charlotte. Very popular song. And it does also reveal something about the movie because they originally were going to call the movie Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte. I don't know that anyone really involved. Thought that was a good idea because it just would be compared and it wasn't a sequel or anything like that. Not a good title either, honestly. Hush How Sweet Charlotte is a lyric in the song and they pulled that to be the name of the movie.
1: Great list of artists I've never even heard of, so I always loved that. Pretty common for that time period for a popular song to be done by multiple artists at the same time. And sometimes multiple versions would become hits. Sometimes it would just be that one version that... We all know now, but there may have been three or four other versions floating, giving you a little sneak peek at our music section of the show. I chose May 22nd, 1965, because that syncs up with Die, Die, My Darling. Just so happens that Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte by Patty Page was on the charts that week. It was number 39 and rising up the charts, eventually went to number eight. I thought that was interesting how it kind of synced up unintentionally. Do you know what song did
0: win Best Song? From the academy awards that year so 64 films released in 64 or 65 i believe 64. okay uh no i don't chim chim Cherie from mary poppins
1: well that would make sense because mary poppins was like the number one grossing film of 1965.
0: all of this kind of comes together yes wow we couldn't have planned it any better
1: a fun little Star Trek connection here. So, it ties into a story that you did. The little boy who goes into the house. He was listed as new boy. I guess he was the new boy in the, hmm. the group of... of makes of, sense. Yes. Played by an actor uh, by the name of John Megna, Kind of a unique look to his face. He was the younger half-brother of Connie Stevens. Wow. He was also the little boy in the Star Trek episode, Miri, season one episode, one of my favorite episodes. That's the one that's got Kim Darby as Miri. Better known at this point for playing the character of Dill Harris in To Kill a Mockingbird. Probably more known for that than for Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. He eventually left acting, but he did actually do a lot of television work and stuff. He went on to become the founding director of LA Arts, a nonprofit theater group in LA. And kind of a sad end, he died of AIDS in 1995 at the age of 42. Hmm. He went into the theater side of it and, and was uh, well known in the LA area. John Crawford was originally cast in the role of Miriam Deering. And I'm giving you the condensed version because there's so much (laughs) crazy. Yeah,
0: I encourage anyone to just do a little research and read. These stories are just unbelievable. Yes. And I don't even know if these are really in chronological order. I was having a hard
1: time keeping up with the chain of events. Other than to say the early part of this filming of this film was a bit chaotic. And some of it clearly was the issues that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had with each other that bled over from their time in Baby Jane, certainly also plays in the part that you're dealing with two larger-than-life characters, and Joan Crawford was her own special brand of a character in herself. Joan Crawford, apparently, as filming started, she felt that Betty Davis was kind of manipulating the director, Robert Aldrich, and one of the quotes here is, She's practically directing the picture for him right in front of me, so God knows what else she's up to behind my back. I might wind up on the cutting room floor. Well, yes, Joan. Yes, yes, you did. There was an incident where, when they were trying to figure out the the hotel, motel situation, I don't know how much truth in this story is, although it's kind of funny in a warped way. I'm just going to read it direct from what I found on IMDb. Uh, allegedly, on the last day of shooting in Louisiana, June 12th, 1964, the last day of shooting for Joan Crawford, after some afternoon shots, Joan Crawford was relaxing in her trailer, on hand if needed for additional scenes. She apparently dozed off because when she woke up, it was dark, and everyone had left and gone home. Basically, she was at like the rear of the house in her trailer. She had no transportation to the motel apparently outraged she had she returned to los angeles california the next day checked herself into cedar sinai and i think that was the end of her relationship with the film the motel situation is interesting because when they all checked in originally at the motel she didn't have her room ready and she had to wait and when she finally got her room it was right next to the trash compactor and she was kind of being a diva about that. And Betty Davis was kind of like, oh, Joan, get over to yourself. Well, Betty Davis was right across from Joan Crawford, but not necessarily next to the uh, trash compactor. It was funny, of course, that Betty Davis's room was bigger and more grander than Joan's. And that, of course, got on to Joan as well, because Betty had the bigger motel room. I think they were looking for a way to get her off because she was the, the problems and all the production delays that were happening about that time because Joan once she got in a little bit of a snit she was causing a delay in production she'd been in the hospital for five weeks I guess I guess she so she went in the hospital came back she returned to work on Monday July 20th 1964 she spent three hours in makeup stepped in the sounds stage where she was greeted with applause and hugs from the cast and crew. Betty Davis also joined in the welcoming and handed Crawford one perfect red rose. On the second day, Davis announced during a scene between Crawford and Joseph Cotton that she wanted some lines eliminated. I am cutting some dialogue, said Davis, wielding a large red pencil and excising large chunks of dialogue from Crawford's scene. Miriam doesn't need them, and you, Mr. Cotton, I hope you don't mind. These lines don't hold me up. Crawford abandoned her professionalism, turned on her heels, went to her dressing room, and from that until the point that she officially left the film, she was unable to work a full day without feeling tired. (laughs) When she finally did get the axe, she stated, Aldrich knew where to long distance me all over the world when he needed me, but he made no effort to reach me here that he had signed Olivia, he let me hear it for the first time in a radio release, and frankly, I think it stinks. When Joan Crawford was replaced by Olivia de Havilland in the role of Miriam, production resumed on Wednesday, September 9th, 1964, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. That's like literally three months before the film was released. Betty Davis and de Havilland pulled a ding dong the witch's dead routine by toasting one another with Coca-Cola. This was a... Uh, dig of the fact that Crawford's husband was the executive of Pepsi-Cola and that she was now on the board of directors of. There's a long list of other things. Suffice to say, I don't know who's to blame, though, depending on which side you kind of fall on that fence. I mean, Joan Crawford was Joan and she was a diva. But Betty Davis didn't sound like she really helped the situation much either. This is kind of funny leading into that. Director Robert Aldrich had to take three planes, a train, and a taxi up a goat trail to get Olivia de Havilland's house, which was in the mountains of Switzerland. It took him four days to convince her to step in and replace Joan Crawford. This is a classic Hollywood tale. The madness that went into the making of this movie. So what happened to all of Joan Crawford's scenes? I mean, it sounds like she filmed a lot. And she is
0: still seen in one scene, apparently, of a taxi cab ride when Miriam comes to the house. You see a dark-haired woman for one little part of a scene. Oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't see that. Yeah. I didn't see it either. I read about it. (laughs) So that's sort of a, you know, I'm sure you picked the highlights, but I also... I didn't so much use it this time for research, but I pulled it out of the shelf and looked at it on my desk. A book called Crazy Old Ladies, the story of hag horror by Carolyn Young. I probably pointed this out in our last episode, but chapter nine, which is titled A Frazzled Nightgown Wraith, is all about the making of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. I also want to add that Joan Crawford was also supposed to be in a movie that Olivia de Havilland replaced her. I don't think they got as far as long, but it's called Lady in a Cage, which is an excellent movie. Another one yes. that I couldn't imagine Joan Crawford doing. No. And I would like to say right now, the next time we do exploitation, let's do that and wait until dark with uh, Audrey Hepburn.
1: Agreed on both counts. All right. Yeah, that's the easiest we've, we've planned a future episode. <laughs> that, that let's write awesome. it
0: down now so we don't forget.
1: I don't really have much more trivia, per se. I do have a lot on the cast. Let's go. Because we have such a small cast. So Betty Davis, she definitely owned this genre with with several films, in which could be either under that umbrella or kind of dancing on the edge. We talked about whatever happened to Baby Jane. film's The Anniversary and The Nanny for Hammer. Dead Ringer, you mentioned. Watcher in the Woods, I wouldn't consider her a part of the hagsploitation genre in that film, but definitely a genre film. Madam Sin is a movie in which she plays like the villain in kind of a, a pulp novel ish story. That's a movie I want to check out. All About Eve, one of her biggest films. I Love Her in Wales of August, a Vincent Price fun film that I finally saw a few years ago. And, of course, everyone knows about her last film, Wicked Stepmother in 89, the crazy film. She left after several days of shooting. She didn't like the script, and it was crap, so she just left. She died in in that same year, 1989, at the age of 81, of cancer. Olivia de Havilland as Miriam Deering, of course, was in Airport 77, which we covered a few years ago here on the show. A couple of big classics, Adventures of Robin Hood, and, yes, that little film Gone with the Wind, Which I did not know. Um, There was a long period of time that she, especially when they were doing like the 50th anniversary, she refused to do interviews. She kind of felt she'd moved on and didn't really want to do interviews for it. We just recently lost Olivia. She died in 2020 at the age of 104. I believe she was living in Paris, I think, where she spent her, her final years. Joseph Cotton, another man we've talked about on the show before, played Dr. Drew Bayliss or Citizen Kane. Gaslight is a film that we had talked about doing and we will probably do at some point in the future. I think we both want to check that one out. Also in Airport 77, he was in Soiling Green, one of my favorite Charlton Heston films. He was in The Abominable Dr. Fives, which we've talked about here. He was in Lady Frankenstein, Latitude Zero, just to mention a few. We've talked a little bit about Agnes Moorhead, best remembered, to think, by most people today is playing Endora in 254 episodes of Bewitched. She was a member of Orson Welles's Mercury Theater Players, therefore that earned her a part in the film Citizen Kane. She was also in the first two seasons, well, technically, of The Shadow, when The Shadow on radio became a main character and not just a narrator. She played the character of Margot Lane, kind of his sidekick. Never really loved interest, although it was always kind of implied. She appeared in the first regular season. She didn't appear in the summer of 38, which they had like a summer season. But then she came back to do the 38, 39 version. And By that point, Hollywood was calling and she was off to, to do films. She was also in uh, the Twilight Zone classic episode, The Invaders, Also in Frankenstein, The True Story, which we've also covered on this particular podcast. Cecil Calloway played uh, the insurance investigator Harry Willis. He was in films like Invisible Man Returns, The Mummy's Hand, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, I Married a Witch, and Harvey. Victor Buono was a guest star because he's gone in the first 15 minutes and before the credits even roll. Big Sam Hollis. He was in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. He was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, The Strangler, The Mad Butcher. Ten episodes of Batman as King Tut, which he owned that role. We lost him at a young age a very long time ago. He died in 1982 at the age of 43 of a heart attack. Mary Astor played Jewel Mayhew. She had 155 credits. This was her second to last role, and it was the last film released. Early on in her career, she had well, She debuted in the Silent Era in 1921 at the age of 15. She was also in The Maltese Falcon. She was in television shows like Alfred Hitchcock and Thriller. She died in 1987 at the age of 81. Sheriff Luke Standish, played by Wesley Addy. Character actor, who was in The Invaders, Outer Limits, Tora, Tora, Tora. William Campbell, Star Trek reference number two, played Paul Marchand. From um, the
0: Met Crime Magazine. Yeah, yeah, he was annoying. From,
1: uh, <laughs> the seedier side, I guess. Yes. Um, big Star Trek references here. He played Trelane in the first season classic Trek episode, Squire of Gothos. He also played the second Klingon that we saw. I, I believe officially he played Koloth in one of the all-time best Trek episodes, Trouble with Tribbles, and he reprised that role. Many years later, in 1994, in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, Blood Oath, he dies in that particular episode. He was also in Dementia 13, Bloodbath, and Tales of the Unexpected. I also saw a very interesting picture of him not too long ago. He and James Doohan apparently had struck up a friendship on Star Trek. They would visit the actors in the, the old actor's home in Hollywood and actually visited Mo Howard and Larry Fine from the Three Stooges. Moe was there visiting Larry after he had his stroke. There's a picture of them. It's like, well, that's just a weird... I love both and have them... I never would have thought Star Trek meets the Three Stooges. That was crazy. And I did not see that until just recently. Frank Ferguson, playing the editor, character actor, 325 credits to his name... Most people will remember him as Mr. McDougal in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. George Kennedy, always nice to see him pop up. Character actor, absolutely, in a gazillion things. He played the foreman in the film. Uh, he was in the Airport Film Series, playing the character of Joe Petroni. Cool Hand Luke, Straight Jacket Thriller, Flight of the Phoenix, Dirty Dozen. And Jeff and I will know him as Carter McKay the uh bad guy in the later seasons of dallas and last but not least we have bruce dern as john mayhew 191 credits and counting as i mentioned earlier still alive and well at the age of 88 with 10 films in various stages of pre post or (laughs) current production so many things to reference here highlights hateful eight in nebraska are two of his more recent big films Thriller, Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock, a couple of Hitchcock films, Marnie and Family Plot. He was in that early 70s sci-fi film, Silent Running. As a youth, I saw him in five episodes of The Big Valley. He always plays the bad guy or a character he's just a little off. And he, of course, was in Black Sunday. And yes, that's true. Gosh, I forgot to mention that. Thank you for, for calling me out on that. A couple of other little smaller roles Town Gossips, who show up at the end of the film. We have Ellen Corby, who is playing the lady who comes up with all the gossip. Best remembered for playing Grandma Walton on the Waltons. She was also in It's a Wonderful Life, which I just recently saw. Every year goes to Mr. Chicken, where she plays the teacher that does not help him at all. Marion Stewart played one of the other two ladies that were staying there originally. this is interesting. She's in a film called Back from the Dead, 1957, which is actually getting released on Kino Lorber this year. Never heard of this film. I've never seen it. I'm doing a blind buy on it. I'm excited to see that. And the actress Helen Klebe, character actress best remembered for playing the role of Miss Mamie Baldwin on The Waltons. One of the cleaning women was actress Lillian Randolph. This is kind of an interesting little thing here. Incredibly small role in the film, but Lillian Randolph played Annie, the maid, in It's a Wonderful Life. So if you're like me and watch that movie every year, you see her pop up on screen every year. She was also the voice of Bertie, the maid, on the great Gildersleeve radio show for 13 years from the thir- 40s and 50s. She also played Birdie on screen in the four Great Gildersleeve movies. She was also the voice of Mammy in countless cartoons in that time period, including four films that are on the infamous Censored Eleven controversial cartoons, including Goldilocks and the Jive and Bears and Cold Black and the Seven Dwarfs. Henry Farrell wrote, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Later on, he would write films like The House That Wouldn't Die and How Awful About Alan. Lucas Keller had 26 credits to his name. He would rework the script after Henry Farrell walked out due to a dispute with Robert Aldrich. He would also be involved in Flight of the Phoenix, Dirty Dozen, and Damnation Alley. Robert Aldrich had 37 credits to his name, including Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?, And Flight of the Phoenix and Dirty Dozen. So you kind of see where George Kennedy might have got his spots in those films and where uh, Lucas Keller might have Lucas Heller might have got the writing gigs for those films. His last movie was All the Marbles in 1981. He would die less than two years later in 1983 at the age of 65 of kidney failure. I'm sure I miss people. There was a lot of people in this film, a lot of uh, recognizable people. And I think that probably just comes from the age that you or I are in, because a lot of these people were on TV in the 60s and 70s. And that's when you and I grew up.
0: One other star, if you could consider that, would be the house, the plantation home. This was the Humas, H-O-U-M-A-S, currently known as Humas House Plantation and Gardens. It's outside of New Orleans. I have been there. I really wanted to dig out some of my souvenirs that I got from there. and I. Just don't know where they are. Didn't have it in me to try to find them. But uh, I do remember looks very much the same inside. Went upstairs and they would point out here and there scenes from the movie. It wasn't the only movie that was filmed at this house. Uh, Some of the others were Mandingo, Fletch Lives, Moon of the Wolf, a TV horror movie from the 70s. Many different things were filmed there. Now, it's. Interesting, none of Olivia de Havilland's scenes were actually filmed there. They had done all their location filming with Joan Crawford. So a replica, they spent like $200,000 building a facade or a Hollywood in California, and that's where they finished. And that is any scene you see with Olivia in the house or in front of the house is this set.
1: That's crazy. To go through that much effort, that far into production. and I did not watch this on a Blu-ray or DVD, so I'm wondering if there's any documentaries out there.
0: There is a commentary. I did not listen to it because it had been so long since I'd seen the movie. I wanted to, to watch If I was more familiar with it, I would have listened to the commentary. It's on a DVD, I believe, from 20th Century Fox. This movie
1: is not impossible to find, You can get it on DVD from uh, Region One, Fox Studio Classics DVD for about 20 bucks. That's the best way to get it into your collection. There was a Blu ray from Twilight Time, currently going for about 100 bucks. There is a Region Two Blu ray from Eureka, Mm -hmm. which goes for about 25. And as we speak right now, you can stream this on Hoopla which I've not watched anything on Hoopla, so I don't know how easy that is to do. You can also rent it on Apple TV and Amazon, which is where I saw it on Apple TV. Although it was weird. It it was a bit hard to find doing a search for it. For some reason, I don't know if it's the hush, dot, 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 hush, comma, Mm. sweet Charlotte that throws it. I was having a hard time finding it on the app. I had to go onto the computer and then I was able to find it that way.
0: That's all I've got. (laughs) I think we definitely both liked this movie quite a bit. I think we did, yes. And when we come back, we'll go into a movie that the book I mentioned calls in chapter 10 the most sensational case of the aging process being unkind. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte, don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. He'll love you till he dies. Richard, we've already had a couple of sneak peeks, but why don't you dig us deeper into 1965, sandwiched right between these two movies, and give us some of our other entertainment options?
1: Die, die, my darling, was released here on May 19th, 1965. So that is the time period that I chose. The top songs of the week of May 22nd, 1965. Still a very interesting mix of music. Some of the stuff you will recognize. Some of it I guarantee you won't. Before we dive into the top 10, top rising and new songs of the week included Tell Her You Love Her Every Day by Frank Sinatra. It was debuting at number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, peaked at number 57. That's probably why we don't know it. Dean Martin had a new song, debuting at number 72, keeping that Rat Pack theme going. Remember Me, I'm the One Who Loves You. It peaked at number 32 on the Hot 100. It went to number seven on the Adult Contemporary Charts. One of his bigger hits from this time period. And a song everybody has heard was rising up the charts. It's Not
0: Unusual by Tom Jones. It's just so funny when you read these... Like, you know, Dean Martin, you know, Frank Sinatra. I don't now think of them as being chart toppers with songs. I I mean, I know they're accomplished and they've done great things. They're famous for their singing. But just to think you could turn on the radio and hear them as a, a top hit.
1: Yeah, it is weird. Odd to see them on the Hot 100 charts for sure. Top 10. I bet you'll know number 10, Crying in the Chapel by Elvis Presley. Number nine. I'd never heard this one before. Just Once in My Life by The Righteous Brothers. Number eight, I know you've heard this one, Woolly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. I'm sure you've heard of Hermits, Hermits. I don't know that you would have heard the song at number seven. I've never heard it, Silhouettes. We will have more from Herman and his hermits later on. Number six, a song I know you've heard before, Back in My Arms Again by The Supremes. Number five, A song I had never heard of, I'll Never Find Another You by The Seekers. Number four, everybody knows this one, Help Me Rhonda by The Beach Boys. Number three, I did not, well, I didn't know this song by the name, but I did know once they played it, Count Me In by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Number two, this is the other hit from Herman's Hermits that I know you know, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. Number one on the chart.
0: So oh, they had Herman's Hermits had two in the top 10. Yes. Wow. Number
1: one song that I know you know Ticket to Ride by the Beatles. That's what you could listen to on the radio if you wanted to stay home and watch television. These are your options on Saturday night, May 22nd. ABC would have been the place to be a night of variety programming. We start the evening off with. The King Family Show, a musical variety show featuring the King sisters and their family. Then, of course, we followed it up at eight o'clock with The Lawrence Welk Show, wow. a one and the two. Then <laughs> that'd be followed by The Hollywood Palace, which was a popular variety show of the day. Over at NBC, we had Flipper kicking off Aww. the evening. Then we had a show called Kentucky Jones. I know why we don't know this show anymore, but I guarantee you've never heard of it. Dennis Weaver had played the character of Chester on Gunsmoke for many years. He left that show to have his own comedy show on NBC in the fall of 64. It ran for one season called Kentucky Jones. He plays a widower raising an adopted Chinese boy named Dwight Eisenhower Wong. And that is why this show is lost. That was followed by The Fabulous Adventures of Mr. Magoo, adaptations of literary classics. Primetime Magoo, I didn't really think of that. And then, of course, the Saturday Night Movie. NBC programming started a little early on Saturday nights. That's why there's so many shows there. I think they started at 6 or 6.30, like they do on Sunday nights. They used to do that on Saturday nights as well. CBS, I think, was the better way to go. We had The Jackie Gleason Show, which was a variety program. We had Gilligan's Island, then Secret Agent, a.k.a. Danger Man over in the UK, and then Gunsmoke. That was your TV options in 1965. Keep in mind you had those three networks, PBS and maybe an independent channel if you're lucky. Not a great night for television back then, but not horrible. Movies. Movies were a little bit better. I think that's probably where we would have... Chosen to go to the box office for May 26, 1965. I did not realize this movie was as big of a hit. I knew it was big. I didn't realize it was this big. Number one movie at the box office for the seventh week out of an eventual 29 weeks in 1965. And out of a grand total of 41 weeks. Spanning 1964 to 1966, The Sound of Music, Sound of Music was massive. It just kept on going. James Bond was another huge box office draw. In 1965, he uh, had six weeks at number one for a grand total of seven. The first of which was at the end of '64 with the movie Goldfinger, and then at the very last week of 1965, he was number one at the box office again for an eventual nine weeks with Thunderball. If you were into horror movies, a very weird mix of films in 1965, we had The Beach Girls and The Monster, we had Monster A Go-Go, we had Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, we had Psycho A Go-Go, we also had Bloody Pit of Horror, Curse of the Fly, we had Die Monster Die, we had Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Planet of the Vampires, we had the skull and we had William Shadner in Incubus. That was what we could go see at the movies in
0: 1965.
1: Die, die, my darling. Die, die. Hurry. Bye bye, my darling. Bye bye.
0: Die. Mr. Strafoyle! Die, my darling. It's quite for the best that I lay you to rest. Die. Die, my darling.
1: You never intended to remain true to this, Stephen. Mr. Strip Boyle. They
0: are insane. This gun is dangerous, Patricia. Starring Tallulah Bankhead. Also starring Stephanie
1: Powers as The Darling.
0: I'll pay you if you let me out of here. In what way, love? Don't!
1: Die. Die, my darling. Die. Die. What would you do when Alan comes to get me? For mercy, cry.
0: No one is going to find you here, Patricia. No one, there's no one here to help, darling, only to kill you, darling, only to kill you, or worse, darling. Want the car, do you? The prices, though,
1: don't you? One of the most terrifying suspense thrillers this side of insanity.
0: Die, die, my darling. You must die, die, my darling. (laughs)
1: At her home in the London suburbs, Mrs. Trefoil has been mourning the death of her son when the woman he was going to marry, Patricia Carroll, pays her a visit out of respect for her wishes. Her would-have-been mother-in-law won't let her leave though. She holds her captive and family secrets are brought to light as Mrs. Trefoil descends into madness.
0: Die, die, my darling. As mentioned in Great Britain, the Hammer film was known as Fanatic. And I believe you might have it in your trivia, but that caused a little bit of controversy when they changed the name in the United States, and one of the stars was not happy about that. I
1: actually don't have that in my trivia. Oh,
0: well, that was Tallulah Bankhead, and I just love saying the name Tallulah Bankhead. I told you right before we started up again that I'm not really familiar with her. About the only thing I knew was that she was in Lifeboat, Alfred Hitchcock. We don't have to get into it now, but I've definitely got some things out of this book that I want to share about her. But she is the so-called hag in this exploitation thriller. What did you think? We know now it is your first time watch. How'd you like it?
1: I guess when you're trying to think of the stereotypical hag... She does kind of fit that mold better than what we have in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Not the tongue-in-cheek, although the music would make you think it's tongue-in-cheek. I'll talk about that later. This movie was not what I was expecting and ended up being a lot of fun. It felt a little long in spots. It felt like they could have done maybe a little bit of editing here and there because it just seemed to kind of drag at one point. Initially, you think Tallulah Bankhead and Stephanie Powers, how are they going to pull this off? It's very different actresses, but it actually really works. And I think Stephanie Powers in particular worked much better in this film than I thought that she was going to. I love this movie. I will say that I didn't enjoy it as much as Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, but I actually enjoyed it a lot. It has its flaws, but a lot of that I think really comes off of Tallulah Bankhead. She could just flip a switch, right? She would just be acting normal and eccentric, and then flip that switch, and you're like, "She is batshit crazy. She has jumped. She is nuts." As I'm watching this film early on, I'm putting myself into Stephanie Powers' shoes. I'm sorry, dead son or not, some of her first statements was a red flag to me, <laughs> and I didn't. Even, I knew obviously it was going to go down a dark path. I had seen the trailer, but. No, no, I I think I can't stay for dinner. I've got to do laundry or something. I had politely excused myself. While I could, you know, the whole religion thing for me was where she was so fanatical. And there was this hints early on that Stephanie Powers character, Patricia, she should have picked up on and should have politely excused herself, got into her car and headed back to her fiance. would have saved her a lot of grief. And then we wouldn't have a movie.
0: I think you liked it a little more than me. I watched it in 2018 and wrote about it. And I only rated it average. I gave it five stars out of 10. I did enjoy it much more this time. The part I liked about it, I'm going to latch onto one particular part that I didn't really catch probably the first time. Not that it's nuanced. There's nothing nuanced in this movie. But Tula the Bankhead's character, you get the impression that she's that way sincerely. And she, those are her beliefs. She sticks by them, but yet hidden in that basement is her past. And she is having more of a struggle than you would think to maintain that pureness that she claims to have. And I found that very interesting adds a little more depth to it. To be honest, the movie is like not complicated, you know, she takes her captive and Stephanie Powers tries to get out. And I think that's where you get the impression it's a little long because that movies that have a plot like that are like that. You know, the person tries to get out. They don't make it. They're locked back up. They try to get out again. They don't make it. They're locked back up. I mean, it can be very repetitive. I think the first time I didn't like Stephanie Powers for some reason, but I thought she was very good in this. Like you said, I do wonder, was she trying to do a British accent at times? I couldn't tell. And then sometimes I definitely thought she was, but most of the time she wasn't. I hadn't picked up on that. Okay. If she was attempting,
1: it was a a poor attempt.
0: I'm curious what you have to say about the music. I don't recall it specifically, but I do know it starts out with sort of a lighter tone over the credits. There's a a cat and mouse silhouettes of them or colorful distortions of them. And, Indicating, oh, this is going to be a cat and mouse movie. But it seemed a little lighthearted, maybe.
1: The score was by Wilfred Josephs. And I, I thought it was a very odd score. It was way too comical at times. It just wasn't in sync with the serious tone of the film.
0: You know, he did stuff like Deadly Bees, Dark Places, The Uncanny, lots of TV work. As mentioned, this is a Hammer film. And this was a time when they were trying to find... A hit In the Vein of Psycho or Diabolique, and they did a series of films in a row that they call mini-Hitchcocks. They're these little thrillers, and this was one of them, and it was based on a novel called Nightmare by Anne Blaisdell. However, it has nothing to do with one of these mini-Hitchcocks, which they called Nightmare.
1: One of two times that Hammer was trying to re-identify because you think of some of the other movies they made around this time. This is also Not too long after they did their version of The Old Dark House, which was comedic at times. They would do other films. I think that's a lot of things people tend to forget. Hammer did more than horror. They did do comedies or action thrillers or pirate films. Yeah, this is one of those times where they were intentionally trying to do something. And depending on your point of view, is like, was it successful? Was it not? I think it depends on the film.
0: I did like how, I mean, imagine if you were engaged to someone and that person died and just out of respect, you're going to visit that person's mother. I didn't realize they had never met before, but they apparently had never even met. So then I was like, well, I don't know if I'd go if I'd never met them.
1: There's no obligation at that point. Yeah. In that would
0: have but been once good. she got there, I liked how obviously there's more to the story than we know and we'll learn as the movie goes on. But she wants to. Paint a, a pretty picture for her. She doesn't want... Why, at this point, would, would you share with his mother the bad things about his life or their relationship? Yeah. And I like how, as it goes on, and she loses more and more of her patience, the truth comes out. And, yeah, it was not pretty. And everything that happened just oh. goes against these beliefs of the mother.
1: Their beliefs are extreme.
0: There was some kind of unintentionally
1: funny moments... The music still wouldn't have been appropriate, but there's some like where she comes down, Stephanie Powers comes down for breakfast. It's like, no, we, we have to pray before we eat.
0: And that's funny because the first day she's there, Tallulah keeps saying, you've got to stay overnight so we can go to church tomorrow. Yeah. And they do shortly go to church, but when they wake her up very early in the morning to say it's time for service, I thought it meant, okay, they're going to get dressed and go to church. No, they have. Church services of their own in the house. Yes, <laughs> that go on so long. Poor Stephanie Power's stomach is growling. Yeah, there's that
1: one scene where she's inappropriately dressed, and so I was like, "Well, you got to, you know, go upstairs, change your clothes." And
0: by when she comes down, breakfast is all put away. Yeah, and the food was very plain. Yes,
1: you know, no like, spices. That's evil. That's the work of Satan. There, salt and pepper will, will send you down a <laughs> dark path. I honestly thought Tallulah Bank had played that role so incredibly well. I've been, you know, seen documentaries and things recent years about extremism and, and things and, and religious cults and stuff like that. And it, it is interesting. She did it very well in the way that, for her, this is just the way it is. If you're not doing what she does, well, you're going to hell. That's her whole mission, right? Is that initially she wants to save Patricia... If she knows Patricia, it was not good for her son. But she has hopes, and she is going
0: to save her. But things devolve very quickly. I want to wanna n- nitpick for just a second. Okay, I I wouldn't use the word hope. That implies that her intentions are good. Well, <laughs> I yeah. think she demands it. Yeah, that's true. That, that's there's no, I, and I know, like I said, nitpicking. It's the same thing. But I. No, you're right. You're right. It, there, there's it, it's not a. Well, I'm going to hope and
1: pray that you get better. Right. Say, you're going to do it or you're going to starve to death. You're going to do it. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell, so you're going to do it. So go upstairs, take off your makeup, and by, while you're up there, we're going to take the food that you really didn't want to eat anyway and go ahead and throw it away. Yeah. Some of the, the games, though, I mean, I don't want to say games, but what some of the things that Tallulah Bankhead's character, Mrs. Trefoil, does, you get that in religious cults. The whole food thing plays a part a lot of times. And sleep deprivation, that's the best way if you're running a cult to get your followers to follow you. You starve them because they're hungry. And then the sleep deprivation, you'll do anything to just get through the moment and you're not thinking right. Yeah, there's no hope in it, you're right. Once she sees what she's dealing with and that Patricia is a sinful person, well, then we're gonna go down this different path, but we're doing it because we love you. That just plays into the to the standard cult thing, right? I mean, all the the pain and tortures and stuff they do they're doing it because they love you and they want to save you. As you said earlier, she's not dealing with a full deck either because she's Mrs. Trefoil has her mission, so to speak, with Patricia, but she's also kept all of her past in this weird basement shrine. And she that, has a,
0: a lipstick hidden in her closet. Yes. And alcohol. And so she talks about the husband a little bit and kind of
1: felt that maybe he set her down that path. I don't know that they really explained, did they? Is like what sent her down. I don't remember anything about. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Maybe she killed him. Well, maybe. She was doing this and then she met him. Then they left that behind. Right. So then... Who was it
0: that if it was her, what was the defining moment? I don't know that they explain that. And it isn't an important part of the story, but we do learn that she used to be in the theater. Yeah, an actress. So I'm sure part of that lifestyle involved some of those things. She didn't leave it totally behind because if she thought that it was truly evil,
1: why did she keep her dresses and all that all that stuff from that part of her life and all the memorabilia that she had? what made her want to keep that, but then view it as evil. But then she would go down there before we even knew what that room was. We see her going into that room. And so it's like she's visiting that shrine. Very weird.
0: And very hypocritical. And that's what what you see with, I believe, what you see with fanaticism. We would think of people like her as, quote, crazy. But I don't really think she comes off like as insane at the beginning. I don't think we know that. I mean, we know she's a kook. She's a fanatic. She's religious, but that doesn't mean she's dangerous or is going to do what she's going to do. No, no, there's no Um, way. Yeah. There's no indication that that's where it's going. And then it, I mean, it goes full tilt and she doesn't come far to me as matching Piper Laurie and Carrie, as far as the fanaticism goes. And, It really plays up on the horror of it at the end. Her little gun to me was like, what kind of threat is that going to be to anyone? But when she picks up that knife and did you notice, by the way, the knife had blood on it? And I don't know where that came from. Some previous. I didn't catch that. There are some shots of her and there's promotional pictures. You'll see it. She looks downright terrifying, you know, holding that knife up in front of her face. And
1: you talked about the gun. There were times that Stephanie Powers could have got
0: away. Absolutely, and that and that's what she's psychologically afraid. Or was that a plot hole? Tulu is an old woman, so she's got some a henchman, Harry, that it works for her. And well, and he and, does. And oh my gosh, that what's Anna. her name, Anne? Anne. I'm more yeah. scared of her than anyone in that movie. Well, she could yeah, I think manhandle Stephanie. <laughs>
1: yeah, she she was. You're going to laugh if you don't know already what role she is better known for. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) When I saw, she had 70 credits, a lot of supporting roles. What's her Uh, name? Then I saw, her name was uh, Yutha Joyce. Okay. When I saw this one credit, I was like, wait a minute. I know this. She played the original Mrs. Roper. In the British series version, Man About the House, which uh-huh. the company was based on. Huh. She was the original Mrs. Roper. And I immediately started thinking of Audra Lindley in the role. Was like, Could Audra Lindley have played Mrs. Trefoil? I'm like, no, no. That would have been a whole different film altogether. And then she died at a very young age. 1980, died at the age of 53 of liver failure. But she's most known for playing Mrs. Roper, so I did not know that while watching this movie. And it, and it will certainly put a new light whenever I see her wrestling on the ground with Patricia, you know, and Stephanie Powers, and getting her in a in an arm block. Imagining Mrs. Roper in that, in one of her moo <laughs> it makes me crack up. Anyway,
0: Stephanie's very clever about devising ways to try to get out, and. Harry that I mentioned that is sometimes Tallulah's, I don't know what you call it, henchman, whatever, or Anna. She's pretty perceptive and notices his attitude towards women. So she comes on to him and, hey, come on up here, you know, and and hopes to get out of there. So she was pretty clever about that. He, though, was, I don't know, he was a real turd.
1: (laughs) He, he was a slime ball. Yeah, I think that that's, he, he was he was a creeper. So he was married to Anna, right? Or they were.
0: Yes, I believe so.
1: But then he was also having some fun with the waitress down at the pub, mm. which comes into play later in the film. But then you've got the other kind of helper handy. I wouldn't call him a handyman. Joseph Donald Sutherland. Early role for Donald Sutherland, yeah, I mean, this is right around the time he's doing Castle of the Living Dead and Dr.
0: Terror's House of Horrors. He kind of plays the creepy guy really well. I have a question about Donald Sutherland. He's not British, is he? No, he was just living over there at the time, as I recall. Okay, I don't know much about his early career, but yeah, all these early films are British films.
1: Joseph is kind of this character where he's dealing with some mental health issues, but can be a strong man if need be, and he's defending Mrs. Trefoil and the others. He can be easily distracted and ends up, by the end of the film, being a big help, sort of, I guess. He's a help until he gets hurt and then doesn't know how to deal with it. An interesting character.
0: Do you think it was blind devotion to Mrs. Trefoil because when one of her schemes is she writes on the back of a postcard, help, I'm being held, something, throws it down to him and he takes it and he puts it in his pocket and she's trying to tell him to take it to the post office and he goes and you think he might do it, but then he turns right around and gives it to Mrs. Trefoil. Do you think he even knows what he was doing?
1: I don't think so. We're led to believe that maybe she didn't catch what was going on, but I think she probably did. We don't know how she found out, right? Did she ask Joseph, what do you have? No,
0: he just turned around and brought it to her, which I thought is what he was going to do in the first place was just give it to her because she was right next to him on a bench reading. No, he stuck it in his pocket. So I thought, oh, maybe he is going to be her savior.
1: Blind loyalty, I guess. But for him, loyalty to somebody who's taking care of him. Tallulah Bankhead, what an interesting person.
0: I just want to read this paragraph. And again, this is all news to me. I just now I didn't really know her. And I hope it's not repetitive. I doubt if it is, because it sounds like there's a lot of stories about her. This says Tallulah Bankhead was one of the most outrageous actresses of her generation. She was known for her fondness of alcohol and cocaine, her affairs with both men and women, including Billie Holiday and Marlena Dietrich, and for her complete lack of inhibitions. She was led by a strong desire to shock by throwing off her clothes and prowling naked or by making wry proclamations in that deep whiskey-soaked voice. My father warned me about men in booze, but he never mentioned a word about women in cocaine. She was, yes, I saw that quote. <laughs> yeah, interesting. She didn't make that many films. Uh, I there was always this impression
1: when her Toluca Bank had. I thought, well, she must have made a lot of films 26 credits, hmm. not all of them film. She made her debut in 1918 at the age of 16, which then is crazy when you think about it. So she. Between nineteen eighteen and then nineteen sixties, I mean, that was like fifty years worth and twenty six credits. By the nineteen thirties, I mean she or one of her first big films was uh, by that point was called movie called Devil in the Deep. Now it was a hit mostly because of her co stars, Gary Cooper, who was becoming known by that point, Charles Lawton, who already was, and a young Cary Grant. Who this is right about the time Cary Grant was in a Mae West film, and that was what kind of really put him on the map. I think it was after devil in the deep or maybe one film after that she left films for like 11 years didn't do anything and she became famous for her parties and the parties would last for days <laughs> and yes you talked about the cocaine bourbon she was a chain smoker she would often take off her clothes at these parties and chat in the nude <laughs> as you do the quote that you gave reminded me of, of another quote I can't remember it exactly, but she was known. I I would say I wouldn't call her a lesbian, but more bisexual because she would certainly have relationships on both sides. There is there is a quote, though, about when she walked in, apparently into a party and somebody asked, how are you doing, Miss Bankhead or something? Well, I'm a lesbian, darling. How are you doing? And just (laughs) blurted it out (laughs) that you didn't blurt such things out. And then she would later make a comment that she couldn't imagine herself being a lesbian because she loved men and all the things they have to offer that women don't. She would ride that fence and play both sides. I don't know which side, and does it even matter? She was who she was. She had, a, apparently, a, a long affair with Hattie McDaniel, which, if there's a, a more odd pairing, skinny, white, Small Tallulah Bankhead and Hattie McDaniel, who, if you don't know who she is, Google it. Man, you talk about two totally opposite people. Apparently had a relationship for years. Actually, at one time, she claimed to have slept with over 500 people. If she had parties that lasted for days, who knows how many things happened? She was gone for 11 years. She comes back. She does lifeboat. Great Alfred Hitchcock movie. I love Lifeboat. She did another film. And then she left Hollywood again in 45 and didn't come back until this film. And then she did another film with Boris Karloff called The Daydreamer. It's an animated film. She does the voice of the sea witch. Her last screen role was in Batman. So I think we need to start doing Batman references here in some of these films. She played the Black Widow which I'm fairly certain is original character. I don't think that was based on a comic book character. Not
0: based on Scarlett Johansson? No, no, no different era. That was in
1: 67, and then she died in 68 at the age of 66 of double pneumonia, influenza, and emphysema. Clearly, the drinking and the cocaine and the smoking, probably the chain smoking more than anything, Sent her down that path. Yeah, a very unique character. But she was not the diva that she was portrayed as being in in all the, the trade papers. There was a feud between her and Stephanie Powers. It was all false. It was fabricated just to generate buzz about the movie. They actually hit it off quite well and maintained that relationship. Also... This is an interesting little thing here, too. I think to show you that Stephanie Powers' friendship with Tallulah, Tallulah had to come back and do blooping for dialogue. Mm, right. The infamous, die, die, my darling. Well, she shows up and she's drunk. So it took them, what, all day long to just properly dub that one line because she was blitzed out of her mind. And actually, there's a stage play based on that whole scenario. Stephanie Powers plays Tallulah, I think, in that, if I, re- if I remember correctly. Tallulah, in some ways, though, she was a professional because there was a time where they were going to consider replacing her on the film because she had become ill, was unable to do the film, but she decided to put her salary up as a guarantee to ensure that she stayed on the film. Which, I mean, she had done a film in 20 years at that point. Very interesting character.
0: She's the one I mentioned that sued when they changed the name in the United States. Did you read anything about that? I didn't read Did anything, anything about that, no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I assume it didn't get anywhere. The cast in this one, much smaller. This, this
1: is a much more intimate film than Hush, Hush, read Charlotte. Vastly different film. Well, my thing with like Hush, Hush, Read Charlotte, you had a lot of characters. And because I recognized the characters... The focus wasn't always on Betty Davis or Olivia De Havilland in that film because you had some pretty powerful supporting characters. Whereas in this film, Delilah Bank had Stephanie Powers with a supporting cast, a strong supporting cast. But I don't, and again, maybe it was because I didn't necessarily recognize most of them, other than Donald Sutherland. When these other characters are on the screen, it doesn't necessarily pull away from the two main characters for me. I really felt it was this battle of wits between Tallulah and Stephanie. Tallulah had her entourage, and Stephanie was kind of holding out hope that the fiancé would get a message, suspect something, and show up looking for her and be her knight in shining armor. Despite the fact they had the argument at the beginning of the film, and she drives off in his car interesting that he ends up being her knight in shining armor by the time you get to the final act of the film
0: i was kind of surprised that he didn't show up earlier i kept thinking okay would he know how to find her and did he even know mrs trafoil that that was her name and then he did get a note that Tallulah forced stephanie to write saying that but she decided to stay or I don't know, something. something like that. Yeah. And that and that's when he came looking and was able to find her. I wonder if he like if he hadn't got that postmark or something, would he have been or, or was it hand delivered the letter? I don't know. Anyway, I just kind of wonder, well, how long what's happening to him? Is he wondering where she is? Well, I think he
1: would have been wondering where she is if for no other reason. She had his car. And so, <laughs> oh
0: yeah, I guess
1: so. think about it. He was like, look, OK, fine. She's gone off the deep end. I want my car. Right. So he would have gone looking for her one way or the other, whether he was looking really for her. But I think I think they were clearly in love. I think he was irritated by her desire to to see the mother of her former fiancé. Right. They they never got married.
0: No, they never got married. Yeah. And Uh, that they wouldn't have gotten married either. That was one of the secrets that came out is Stephanie wouldn't have ever ended up marrying him. And that's another reason if that's the case, why go see her? She never would have been your mother-in-law. Maybe he was as wacky as she was, and that's why she wasn't going to marry him, and she had to go see, all right, where did this guy come from? There's probably reasons we don't know that. I
1: really think that it was, yeah, she was just to be nice and just to see her and try to give her that closure.
0: And you know what? If she didn't go, we wouldn't have a movie.
1: Well, exactly, and and we would have ended the podcast before now. (laughs) It's always easy to watch these films, and you're like... Girl, you need to pack your bags and get out the door now. Because we've seen enough of these movies to know this is never going to end well.
0: If you to be fair, this, she does try to leave, I think, fairly early and they've locked her in or something, the front door. She. I think by the point they're locking the door, she had the tide had turned. When she says why she has to get back to London, she says it's because she has lunch with a girlfriend. So she's still thinking about to Lula's feelings and doesn't want her yes. to know that she's already in love and that's with That's what I think, is. I think she's trying to help her get closure. Written by the great Richard Matheson, I don't know how much it differs from the novel, but I do know that the part of her being used to be an actress is added that was not in the novel.
1: Anne Blaisdell, who did the novel, kind of interesting. Her real name was Barbara uh, Leningen? L- Lenington. And Anne Blaisdell was actually one of five different pseudonyms that she wrote under, but she is one of the first women to women authors to write police procedurals, which yeah. really is what the the original book was more of a police procedural. And this is her only film credit, but she did have a whole series of books under a variety of different names. Richard Matheson, we've talked about. I mean, gosh, yeah. multiple times mm-hmm. in the show. I am legend. That's all you need to know about that. And that'll send you that'll do that. And that'll send you down a path full of full of goodness that us uh, sci-fi horror fans are, are well familiar with.
0: The first time I saw it in my notes was I was a little disappointed by what was down there. I mean, I thought maybe her husband's mummified body would be down there or something. You know, like I said this time, though, I really liked it. And also. I liked the cinematography when they were down there, the colors. Everything was cast in a green or a purple light. Yeah. And I thought, one thing is, well, this is a much more colorful life she could have lived than what she did. Yes, that's how I picked but that up. then one. there is literally a stained glass window there with purple and green. So I thought, well, I don't know if it'd shine in like that, but it at least kind of explains it. But I like the more abstract.
1: Well, I think it was the only room in the house that really had color, right? The rest of the house was...
0: Very drab. It could have been black and white, and, and you wouldn't have noticed a difference. What was the significance of the water running? The faucet was running twice. And not just dripping. It was, like, fully running. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that, now that you asked. But, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. And there's a great homage to Psycho when they go in there, and I don't remember if it's her. Or Stephanie hits the hanging light, and it swings back and forth. Casting shadows in the basement—that's yeah. classic psycho scene. I do have some things on the rest of the cast. If you want to,
1: yes, please. Stephanie Powers. At first glance, it's an odd choice. Stephanie Powers, hammer. How does that work? But I think she does really well in the role of, of Patricia Carroll. Most well known, I think, for her career, 111 episodes and eight made-for-television films of Heart to Heart. She was also in The Girl from Uncle, which was the spinoff from The Man from Uncle. And I think it was a Munkle episode that features Boris Karloff in drag. I think his character's name is Mother Muffin. She was also known to fans of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman for playing the character of Shallon, the space alien, who was, I guess she was one of the ones that created Bigfoot. Bigfoot has an affection towards Shallon. She was also in a lot of TV including The Sixth Sense. Uh, She was in Experiment and Terror and another Hammer film called Crescendo. Peter Vaughn played Harry, the the sleazy guy who kind of gets what's coming to him. Very prolific actor, 230 credits. Village of the Damned, the movie we've covered many years ago here on the show. Straw Dogs, he was in Time Bandits in Brazil. He did 11 episodes of Game of Thrones where he played can't remember how it's pronounced, but was it Maester Eamon? A-E-M-O-N. That doesn't sound right. He was the one at the Night's Watch. We lost him not too long ago. Died in 2016 at the age of 93. Maurice Kaufman played Alan the boyfriend. Actually, a lot of things that we've seen him in before. He was in Gorgo. He was Dr. Whitcomb in The Abominable Dr. Fives. He was in The Quatermass Experiment. Uh, also in films like A Shot in the Dark, The Giant Behemoth, The Vault of Horror. The only other little tidbit I have is the director, not familiar with him, Silvio Narrazzano.
0: I was just going to ask you if you had, uh, knew much. anything about him.
1: 41 credits, lots of TV credits. Georgie Girl, probably the most well-known film that he did in his career. Not a lot, though, from Silvio
0: the Hammer films weren't always Terence Fisher and the likes of uh, that, but he didn't do any other films for Hammer, did he? I didn't see anything, no. That's all I had. I enjoyed this film a lot.
1: If I had to say which of these two I liked better, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte would
0: get the nod from me. I think it was a, a, a better film. I'd give a thumbs up to both of them. I think Charlotte is a better film. I think this one in some ways is more fun. Yes, not as I agree with that. Yeah, not as this is going to sound weird to say not as serious, but it is a little more over the top. And it is. How did you watch this?
1: I have it in the Hammer Films Ultimate Collection Blu-ray box set with 19 other random Hammer Films. You can also rent it on Apple TV and Amazon. It's not streaming anywhere. So this one's a bit more difficult uh, to get a hold of. How did you watch it?
0: On the Mill Creek set, and I have a question about that. Yes? I had watched movies in there before, but I opened it and all the discs had fallen off of their little thing that they stick on. Did you oh. have that issue at all? And then when I was trying to put them back on, they just, they don't stay. The, the little knobs that come up that the hole goes uh, around aren't very deep?
1: Uh No, all mine were in place and... Huh.
0: Also, I won't say I was disappointed. I actually would be surprised if very many of these movies, especially when they're two on a disc, have any special features. But I do know Josh Kennedy did the commentary for the Gorgon. So I was, in that respect, a little disappointed there wasn't a commentary or anything for this. It was just bare bones.
1: Yeah, not even a trailer. That's
0: a kind of a pet peeve of mine. It's like you can't even slap a trailer on there. You well, know? when you've got a hundred movies in a set, I, you know, give them a break. I suppose. I guess what? It's
1: two movies to. And get. it's
0: Mill Creek, not Criterion.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, okay, I guess doesn't have a hundred movies in it. Those days are done. Oh, okay. You can't even get those sets anymore. Mill Creek quit selling those sets.
0: I think that wraps it up then for our movies. We'll take a quick break and come back and review some new business. I feel like we've been texting each other back and forth quite a bit about releases that are coming out. And we just had a conversation before I hit record. They apparently are announcing quite a few with like no date, no pre-order date, no street date or anything. So the ones I'm going to do are ones we know for sure. And then I hope you'll go ahead and mention some of those others. Cause I didn't even include them first and foremost. And this is appropriate as we approach episode 100 as Everyone knows episode one was King Kong from 76 and Paramount is stepping into the boutique label area and kind of doing a big deluxe steelbook for King Kong 76. I remember when we did that episode, it was not on Blu-ray, I don't believe, and I had to order a Japanese version. I don't know if you remember that. It has since been on Blu-ray, but just bare bones, you know, Paramount release, so I don't know if I'm going to get this or not. All those other things in the set sure do look nice. Eureka, which is a British company, has made a deal in the United States with MVD to release their movies and their first, well, I don't know it's their first, but The Cat and the Canary from 1927 is coming out on April 23rd. Speaking of Criterion, Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1985 is coming out April 9th. It has been on Criterion before, but... I don't believe in the Blu-ray. So this is a Blu-ray version. Arrow, their big release on April 30th is Basket Case from 1982, a movie I doubt we'll ever discuss here. And then Severin on March 26th, two interesting films Burial Ground from 1981 and Dracula Prisoner of Frankenstein from 1972. That's a Jess Franco film. And I got an email earlier this week. Mine is in Shipment. I must have pre-ordered it because number one, it's not March 26th. And number two, they're sending me one.
1: I didn't pay much for it. Glad it's in the collection. You'll have to let me know what you think <laughs> of it when you watch it. I struggled with that one. I yeah,
0: did. I don't expect much. I don't know. I just think I love those combinations. Of, is it in any way sort of a monster mashup or not? Uh
1: Sort of, yeah, sort of. Well, I don't know. Go in with low expectations on a night that you're, you know, sometimes you're in the mood for cheesy, crappy films. Trash. Trash. Euro trash. When you have your low expectations in sync with your desire for some Euro trash, you may come out of it and give it an 8 out of 10 and a rave review. I went into it, I think, with higher expectations I don't
0: know why. And I'm Yeah, but left- that doesn't seem like something you'd buy. You must have seen something really good on Facebook. I think I just, sometimes I do get in moods for... Oh, uh, I know.
1: I, do too. I, I get most of my Euro trash films from you when you buy a second <laughs> copy. So, uh, and I appreciate that greatly because it saves me the money and I,
0: I still enjoy them. That's all on my list that I could pin down a pre-order date. What uh, do you have?
1: This one came to my mind as we started talking about it. There's a site out there called Serial Squadron. He apparently is starting a sister site where he's putting a lot of his horror stuff that he's done on there. It's called Vanishing Shadows. There's a new collection of four restored classics presented for the first time in full color. $10 discount if you order before February 15th. He is offering colorized versions of Night of the Living Dead, White Zombie, the old dark house and carnival of souls. I don't know if these are any different than some of the other colorized versions lurking out there. I'm not a fan of colorized versions. Mm-mm. I know some people are kind of typing up colorized versions lately. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm always going to be a, a black and white purist. There is something that he's got. Uh, he's offering that, that piqued my interest and it's called the vault of horrors. It is currently available dark cinema fantasy anthology this is an energetic collection of rarities from the 1910s to the 1930s featuring 1910s frankenstein in color visually noise reduced transferred at the correct speed stabilized newly scored other things on there stuff that i'm not even familiar with portrait from 1916 which is a russian short the mission of mr foo which is a thomas edison fantasy film Kind of a Fu Manchu-like character. It includes the Mad Doctor from 1933. A familiar-looking mouse tries to find his dog in a horror castle owned by a mad doctor who wants to do evil experiments. Guessing it's a cartoon? Mascot in the Devil's Ball, 1933. Sounds like another short film from Russia. And a color-tinted version of Seven Footprints to Satan. Did you mention the other Nashi film, The the Unliving? I did not. MakeFlix is the name of this company. They're putting out the Paul Nashi film, The Unliving. This is the last time that he played the Vladimir Daninsky character. And this is the Fred Olin Ray film that pretty much is notorious because it's it's a skin flick with with Paul Nashi in it. He didn't have anything to do with the production of the film. Supposedly is not that good, but it's nashy. It's Blu-ray. Shipping is supposed to happen the week of February 5th, and we're recording on February 4th. They also were selling a comic book version. As of you and I record this, they still have some copies of that left.
0: I also got an email from Vinegar Syndrome, and this I knew I had pre-ordered because I had been waiting, losing sleep at night, over my copy of Little Darlings. That's all I had. All right. I've got a couple birthdays in movies appropriate for this episode. Let's start with the birthdays. February 20th, 1926, Richard Matheson was born. He wrote Die, Die, My Darling. February 27th, 1910, Miss Joan Bennett from Dark Shadows. A lot of Dark Shadows in this episode.
1: I tried to find a Doctor Who connection to Die, Die, My Darling, and I couldn't.
0: March 11th, 1921, Sam Hall. He was one of the big writers on Dark Shadows, married to Grayson Hall. February 19th, 1964, Dead Ringer with Betty Davis was released. And on February 23rd, 1965 in London, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors featuring Donald Sutherland. Now, Richard, tell us what is going on with your endeavors in the world of classic horror that have nothing to do with this podcast or are related tangentially.
1: I will retroactively mention that once again, last month, I said, gosh, I have nothing for our Black Museum, although we recorded that at the end of December. And I ended up thinking, hello, the Black Museum radio show. So I threw up some links during the course of the month to the Black Museum radio show, which starred or featured Orson Welles as the narrator, which really kind of tied into our conversation, which I don't think I mentioned on the show. I so thought I did some stuff on that. I am going to hold myself to this, and this will be funny. I'll probably mention this on the show and then, it and then not do anything. But I had an idea, and unfortunately, the last couple of weeks have been crazy. So it didn't gel quite as quickly. But I had four films that just kind of randomly came on my radar, and they're all kind of forgotten horror films. And so I thought it'd be fun to do like a forgotten February. I think I'm going to do this. I hope that I'm going to do this. I wanted to do it like the four consecutive Fridays. And, well, here we are recording February 4th. It didn't happen. Sengali, the 1931 film, just recently covered over at the Diecast Movie Podcast. There was some conversation, I think, on that show as well, briefly about The Mad Genius from 1931, both of which star John Barrymore. Mad Genius features a cameo appearance by Boris Karloff. And then a movie called 13 Women from 1932. And then a film that I have from Keynote that's been sitting on my shelf, and I just, I looked at it the other day, and I thought, that's the fourth film. The Man Who Was Sherlock Holmes. That is what's happening over at my site, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What's going on in your neck of the woods, sir?
0: On ClassicHorse.Club, I have been going through the Peter Cushing box set, Cushing Curiosities, Speaking of not exactly horror, we've yet to get to a horror, and we're yet to get to Peter Cushing being in a primary role. But he does play important parts in Cone of Silence, Suspect, and The Man Who Finally Died. And next on the box set is the Sherlock Holmes TV series. I was going to combine Suspect and Man Who Finally Died into one week. And then do just a couple representative episodes of Sherlock Holmes. But I just realized I'm not the Sherlock Holmes guy. I mean, I enjoy movies, but I don't know about them like you do. And I wouldn't know really how to put them in any point of reference. And then rounding out the month, which as you're listening to this will be the next two Mondays, I think. Bloodsuckers and Tender Dracula. So we're going to get into horror, but somehow I'm not sure the movies are going to be that good. But they should be curious. In March, I'm going to be tagging on to our episode. You want to tell folks what that is going to be?
1: Yes, we are doing one of our retrospective episodes, and it's going to tie into a box set that was just recently released. The Criminal Acts of Todd Slaughter, Eight Blood and Thunder Entertainments, 1935-1940, a uh, limited edition Blu-ray box set from Indicator. Santa gave that to me. Santo or Santa? (laughs) It might might have been Santo. We're going to be talking about Todd Slaughter's career and taking a, a look at all the films in this box set, and as well as a couple of others towards the end of his career that were not. More specifically, the two films that we are going to highlight are one film that I'm sure everyone's familiar with, and it is Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. This is the 1936 version. I think a lot of people probably dived into this when the Johnny Depp version came out because there was some talk about it and it's been readily available public domain for quite a few years. So if you can find it on YouTube, you can play along at home if you don't want to dive into the box set. And then the second film also readily available on YouTube, Horror Maniacs also known as the greed of William Hart. This is a 1948 film. So this is not in the box set, but a really good copy is available on YouTube. It does run 10 minutes short than the official runtime that is on IMDb, which is, what, an hour and 20 minutes? This is running an hour and 10 minutes. But it is longer than the 53-minute version, which is often the public domain version that pops up of this film. And I think that's the one under the title, The Great William Hart.
0: We talked about how we were going to research before that episode and find out what the differences are and why and all that. But I have an idea. I bet one of our listeners might know that and they could send us, quote, feedback, giving us that information, and then we wouldn't have to research.
1: That would be great. Absolutely. No, seriously, if anybody knows, please reach out to us and let us know. You know, his films are definitely different because they're kind of a melodramatic Suspense thriller horror. He's kind of the mustache twirling villain in a lot of his films. Definitely different than what we've been doing recently. I think it's going to be fun, though. Criminal Acts of Todd Slaughter. You can buy the box set for about $60 right now on Amazon. That's a pretty good price to get these films. It's a nice package. Or you can find the two films, Sweeney Todd or Horror Maniacs. You can find those on YouTube. Play along at home for next month's Todd Slaughter retrospective. Episode number
0: 94. Got anything else? I don't have anything else. No. Well, why don't we wrap it up then? That sounds good. We're going to go out with a song hinted at earlier. It's called Die, Die, My Darling by The Misfits. It's from their 1984 album Earth AD. I thought it's interesting. The label that owns the copyright is called Plan 9. I <laughs> love it. We will see you next month. Thank you, everyone.